Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins. I'm here with the man whose Brazilian soccer name on Facebook is Pringlinho da Costa, also known as Chief Archivist Mark Pringle. Hello, Barney. Hello, Mark. I'm also here with another Mark, our very special guest, Mark Senker. Hi, Mark. Hi. Lovely to see you, Mark. Thank you for coming in. Mark has come in to talk about, and I'm going to take a deep breath here, a hidden landscape once a week, colon, the unruly curiosity of the UK music press in the 1960s to 80s in the words of those who were there, edited by Mark Sinker. <laughs> well, it's a, this is a terrific book that I've just sort of plunged into and enjoyed so much. Why don't you just give us a brief recap on what the book is, Mark? Well, uh, what I'll do is just quickly read the blurb. The start of it all. Uh, In May 2015, I convened a conference at Birkbeck in Bloomsbury called Underground Overground, The Changing Politics of UK Music Writing from 1968 to 85, which brought together writers, editors and readers of the underground and trade music presses from the 60s to 80s with academics and other commentators to discuss the emergence and evolution of the countercultural voice in the UK as inflected through the rock papers and music press in those decades. And this book basically collects transcripts of some of the panels and then further kind of essays and conversations from people who are involved and from some other people as well. Terrific. I mean, I remember when you first came to tell us about this. That must be like five years ago. And so we were privileged to be involved with it. Uh, We took part in some of the panels yep. and we attended many of the other panels and it was it was absolutely fascinating i have very good memories of that me too it was, it was a pretty riveting couple of days it was a great pleasure to meet people like john ingham who i'd never met before valerie wilmer who i'm a huge fan of um and some of the panels were extremely stimulating they, they really they were really were yeah and it covered so many things i mean one of the challenges of us talking here today is sort of where do you start where do you middle where do you end there's so much to talk about so much in this book the focus is on the U- uk music press but it's more diverse than that it really confronts the 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 era the whole phenomenon of the counterculture of the underground of magazines obviously publications like Oz and and, and IT International Times and and lots of fanzines as well as the broader mainstream music press so what's the thread that winds through well I think in some ways you've already said the thread which for me was recognizing that from the underground but also within the music papers as they were already constituted, there were groups of people who were trying to wrestle with the wider scope of culture just at the moment where everything had connected. The Beatles' live global broadcast is in 1968. Mm -hmm. uh, as, As the sort of pinpoint of when we're young, we're here, we... Unlike the grown-ups, we understand everything and we encompass everything, which is obviously like a a very grand and dubious claim and in many ways more failure than not. But people were really trying to do that. Sure. And uh, certainly by the time I was reading the rock press, which is really from the mid-'70s and writing for it from the early-'80s, there there were pockets of people who were still, I think, trying to work out a way to cover everything from this different perspective in a way that 
mainstream media wasn't really doing and uh and it was yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's interesting that you can look at, let's say, 1966 and 67, and music was appearing which wasn't being discussed in the terms in which it was being made, for, yes. sort of really for the first time, the development of the album as, as an artefact. And I'm probably a bit older than you. I was uh, 12 in 1968, but I've been listening kind of to rock seriously for about a year and a half sort of before then. The underground press was the only place pretty much where any sort of discussion about the meaning of this stuff yep. was, take, was taking place. As was discussed last in the panel, there's a point where the underground press starts filtering into the mainstream music press in this country with the enemy writers like Nick Kent and Charlie Murray. And yeah. yeah, the underground sort of goes overground to some degree, doesn't it? What I wanted, I mean, and that's absolutely true, and that was a trajectory I was already aware of and wanted to codify and get people talking about. I also wanted to complicate it a little bit because I knew that people like Val Wilmer had been writing for Melody Maker some time before that and in fact bringing in you know a much more radical perspective maybe than just psychedelia. Psychedelia being a lovely thing but yeah free jazz was very out there and also I'm glad I've got a nice big piece from john about the way the the pop yeah john savage the pop magazines in the mid 60s were thinking about trying to wrestle their format was not good for wrestling with these Mm. kind of bigger topics but they recognized that there was something going on and were trying to find a way to talk about absolutely one one of my favorite writers we have on rocks back pages dawn james who wrote for rave from 65 to 69 and she was writing, I mean, she was always, it was always about the personality. She was, she was never really talking about the music, per se. Right. But she was writing seriously about the musicians as personalities. Right. And, and that's her attempt yes. to do ex- kind of exactly what yeah. you, you say. Um, of course, the long-form album or live review really didn't exist. No. Um, even Melody Maker, they'd give long reviews to jazz records, but very, very short capsule reviews to rock right, records. Of course, yeah. And so that, 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 that was the change which took place at the end of the 60s. Without, uh... Yeah. I remember just it was such a treat to see and hear people like Val Wilmer at the conference. Yeah. And, and also a bunch of people I'd never clapped eyes on before or, or heard in person, like, like Mark Williams. I love, particularly love the Val Wilmer conversation with with Richard Williams. Yeah, fantastic. That was terrific. Yeah. yeah, that was that was great. Some of the panels were terrific, and it was it was it was such a, a broad spectrum, and there was room for there was room Pen- for so much politics uh, in there. Which penny reels, penny penny reels, <laughs> penny real constantly sort oh, of heckling I, and interrupting. I was yes. the only working class bloke on International Times. <laughs> yeah, all that was was a, well, a, a big little, part of the fun. A of little it. bit of that got in the heckling. It doesn't. And sadly, wasn't all caught. On the mic because he wasn't one to wait for the, <laughs> the person with the mic to. But no, I, I'm glad it, it's. I mean, since since he's no longer with us since yes, the sadly. conference and since the book, but I'm yeah. glad that he is in the book. Yes, and I think a little bit of a sense of like who he was and what he was like gets yeah. into the book as well. Yes, you know it's quite interesting. So the panel I was on, which was Jonathan Green, yeah. and and that was one where Penny was kind of heckling yes. about that sort of stuff and. And it revealed an interesting point, is that the underground press was essentially a middle-class construction. Yes. And Mick Farron would sort of deny that, but actually he's pretty middle-class himself, despite his wonderfully convoluted sort of London tones. Yeah. And so these undercurrents were very important to the whole thing, that, that, that you know, someone like Penny Real, as a Dalston boy, feeling pretty excluded from this 
hip scene, you know. And, um, what a great writer, of course. Oh, it's fantastic. Was. My God, cantankerous sod he was, but my God. He's, he's, he, his, his style of writing is fantastic because it's somewhere between uh, West Indian Patois and Shakespeare. Yeah, for sure. Extraordinary, for sure. Yeah, yeah. but Beverly Glick, wonderful to read her in those roles, and the, and the mysterious, always mysterious to me, Idris or Idris oh, Walters, Idris who Walters. I remember reading on kind of Let It Rock when yeah. I was like fourteen years yeah. old, yeah. and another peculiar stylist. Yes. I mean, yeah. a, an extraordinary writer. Um, so there's, I mean, if you've got kind of Tony Stewart, who is my first editor, yes. really at one end of the spectrum, you've got kind of David Toop at the other. Yeah. There's sort of room for everyone and, the, and there's a lot of people being very articulate in hindsight yeah. you know, probably more articulate than they've been able to be but standing back from though too stoned at the time very too stoned yeah <laughs> but Jonathan Green was was, was very endearing oh he's great fascinating yes. yeah. um, that was the first time I met him because I actually recruited him to Roxback Page as well because I found oh, his, right, web, yes. his own yes. website because yes. he's a lexicographer yes that's right yes yeah. and it was really nice to meet him he was a charming man mm. it was pretty thrilling Occasion, I thought. Yes. And I, 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 I was very, very pleased to take part in it and hugely enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, Paul I mean, Gilroy's yeah. contributions are very interesting yeah, no, in terms, it's good. In he terms was of very you know, enthusiastic. black music and journalism. I, I, I've known him since when very early on at Wire and when, when I took over as editor, I, I remember just going for a coffee with him and talking through what he'd like to do. So I knew that he had a history of being a reader and whatever, but when we chatted before the conference, I hadn't realised at all how deep it was mm. that... That you know he'd wanted to write for Sand since the mid seventies, but also as a schoolboy he'd attended the Oz trial, mm. which you know, which I mean <laughs> yes. he's mentioned in here, but he but I just think that's such a terrific, such a uh, good antenna for work for yes. knowing like what matters and and how he'd like to be part of it. So yeah, no, for me one of the great things about the conference was ex- exactly the same thing, basically reaching out to people who I'd admired for years. Yes. A couple of whom I, I knew as well, but many of whom I didn't really know yes. at all, except as a name, and, and having them say, oh, yeah, that sounds interesting, and then coming along. And then, you know, delivering, yes. actually being really as interesting as I thought they could be. To bring things into yeah. the sort of present day, given how our appreciation of music and pop culture and the subcultures was shaped by so many of these Mm. writers is there a sort of nostalgic element here whereby we're saying what you're covering in this book doesn't really have the same kind of resonance today that that there aren't these sorts of writers there are no writers like nick kent whereby brian wilson famously said to nick you look more like a rock star than i do not difficult (laughs) in a way but but so that idea of a personality right i mean what what's what's changed since i don't know what what date you would put on the the end of this of this book um but you know do, do people are their experiences and their consuming of of music are they are they shaped in the same way by by writers I think I would maintain that there are plenty of great young writers. I agree. But what there isn't is this sense of people working in collective, which is created by magazines. There's a kind of a physicality to an old-form magazine which has got mm. lost in the ease of ease of transmission in the internet, which is great for many things, but it actually mm. makes it very difficult. Diffuse as it well. It diffuses yes. things mm. and... Uh, you don't. There's not very many magazines in the 
sort of digital age which have managed to get across a sense of a group of people enjoying themselves while they're doing and when the, and they haven't been music magazines i mean gawker maybe did but gawker then has other people have other issues with it because it it, it basically the joy of it for them yeah. was being very rude to people and so on so it wasn't the same sort of thing but it is possible to create it but whether it's possible to create it round a mission of introducing people to things they don't know about yeah i think that's much harder to mm. be so certain of because if anything the age of the internet where we're bombarded by things we don't know about all the time mm. so we're in a much more of a defensive crouch mm. over mm. uh receiving of other people's opinions and other people's worlds which just wasn't the case in the 60s and 70s mm. it was like it was opening a door to all kinds of amazing yes. things and you could easily work out how you wanted to feel good well, mm. that's a very contorted way of saying it but I mean, <laughs> people did feel good because it was new and exciting and it seemed to be opening up things yeah. up whereas i think people now are generally much more anxious mm. about how you protect yourself from other people's perspectives and opinions and shouting <laughs> and so how you know how we think about that is is a much more complicated thing it's mm. kind of probably not my or our generation who are going to end up finding the solution to that either um, <laughs> certainly not mine yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean so while there are still tribal elements in pop culture it's not uh, like it was where it was sort of the young against the old order i think i think that has dissipated yeah. quite a lot and yeah. i i also think it was only really a relatively short period where that was so kind of intensified and then commodified yeah i think the other thing is is that back when most of these writers were writing you're talking about something which is essentially horizontal this is new followed by this which is new but followed by that's new mm. now it's vertical we're talking about 67 or 70 years of, yeah. of, yes. of, of of pop history and pop culture and consumers young and old as as likely to go down through that as to go along through what's sort of current. So it's become, sort of, in a sense, much more three-dimensional, but yeah. also inherently yes. more confusing and hard to sort of explain. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Yes. And, and I think, I, I mean, certainly when I was starting, I could, I could bluff my way into presenting myself as having a knowledge of mm -hmm. a set of things. I think that's much, much harder to do now. It's much, much easier to catch people out so that you have to come sort of pre-armed with a genuinely deep knowledge and in fact you know one of the things that that the whole project has always been fighting against is that genuinely deep knowledge doesn't necessarily make for great writing absolutely and often great writing comes at the point mm. where you're teaching yourself but we are we're confronted with instant access to the entire encyclopedia of everything yes and people fact checking you in the comments yes uh in good faith in bad faith yes. correctly and incorrectly so everyone yeah. is is constantly i think i think the one thing that is valuable now is to challenge some of the assumptions that rose through this sort of history for example the triumph of the nme it's, a, it's almost a given that the nme was the pub music publication yeah. in the 70s and 80s well that's actually in my job as an archivist going back through it you find it simply isn't true yes mm. yeah yeah it's not just about facts, it's about the rewriting of history. I mean, in a sense, the mojoification of sort of music writing, which is about a sort of set of shibboleths. Of this is 
accurate rock history, and it just turns out not to be true half yeah. the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, again, that was something that, that I wanted to... I mean, I, I wanted to establish, you know, my own debt to the mm-hmm. enemy and the fact that I do think, for a while, it, it was it's a great the paper. sort of spine. And it, but, yes, that there was other important people people yeah. doing things elsewhere, yeah. and it wasn't even necessarily just at the, at the weeklies, although they presumably had, certainly collectively, the biggest readership yeah. and were churning out the most words because it was every week, not... Every month, or mm-hmm. whenever, however mm. often, exactly. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> sure. yeah, sure. Well, so so, so that is uh, Mark Sinker's "A uh, Hidden Landscape Once a Week," which is published next week, I believe, by Strange Attractor. Yes, yes. Um, it's actually distributed in the US, certainly by MIT, which gives it some real heft in my book. But it is a wonderful book. I really recommend it. If you have any interest in this subject, if you're listening to the Rocks Back Pages podcast, I'm kind of assuming you do have some interest. There's a nice segue out of this, actually, because one of the... I learned so many little things I didn't know reading the book. Well, that's good, because I feel you guys are the people. (laughs) (laughs) We should know everything. But I didn't know or had forgotten that Mark Williams whose uh, Strange Days magazine you mentioned. Yeah. Remember? And, of course, he worked on IT. And it's a great character in yeah. the story. Yeah. Uh, he briefly went to Los Angeles to work for Slash Records. And our free feature on the homepage this week is about the Flesh Eaters and the Gun Club, both of whom featured uh, singers who had written for Slash. So Chris D., of Slash Magazine, and Jeffrey Lee Pierce, the, the late Jeffrey Lee Pierce of the Gun Club, had also written for Slash. And the Flesh Eaters have a new album out called I Used to Be Pretty, and it and it reconvenes this extraordinary sort of super group from Los Angeles in about 1980-81. So members of X, members of the Blasters. So it was Christy and DJ Bonebreak of X. It was Dave Alvin of the Blasters. He he managed to corral these very interesting guys and record this stunning album called um, A Minute to Pray, A Second to Die. And he's managed to bring them all back together again in, in 2019. They're still alive. Yeah, yeah fortunately, <laughs> they, are, they are still alive. There's sax player Steve Berlin. Anyway... I just thought it was an interesting um, place and time. I lived in L.A. myself from 1982 to 1983. So, although I didn't see the Flash Eaters, I did meet Jeffrey Lee Pierce in that time. And I saw a bunch of those bands. I saw X and I wrote quite a lot about that scene. And so what we've got is we've got a piece by the great Byron Coley, who you will know has written for Wire. You you, you will have had some some dealings with Byron, who's, I think, one of the Mm. the great kind of free associating sort of near gonzoid writers so so byron writing um uh, about chris d as and really take him seriously as as a writer as a songwriter we've also got a more retrospective piece by don snowden who was one of the great la writers you know wrote wrote for the los angeles times terrific guy wrote uh, played bass in fast freddy's band and we have fast freddy's guide to the la scene 1973 to 1983 all the great record mm-hmm. shops and clubs so so it's uh, it was an interesting place in time uh la was was so associated with with music unlike this yeah. kind of uh, dark uh, gothic uh, punk it, it, style it's very interesting is that, that that 
virtually all the established LA venues are closed to most of these sorts of bands. And so I think was Madame Wong's Chinese Madame restaurant Wong's. became kind of one of the places where bands could play. And the idea of an underground in the most overground city on earth and right. is, yes. is, 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 is kind of inherently interesting. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing is that the distance people have to travel just to say hello to each other. Mm. It's very hard to maintain any scene when you're that spread out. Mm. But, very but they did. Stuff. They did all sort of cling together, and and uh, I sort of came in on, on on the tail end of that, and I sort of arrived when the whole Paisley Underground thing was was percolating. So I, I met some of those bands, but it was it it, it was an interesting time mm-hmm. to be there because because yeah, sure. on the radio, like sort of K Rock, it was all this very very mainstream kind of new wave or AOR or you know what what we associate the 80s with and people forget the 80s there were a lot of really interesting I mean I suppose the, the, the kind of comparison or the analogy would be with, with something, something like the birthday party Nick Cave yeah. here so even while everything was sort of poptastic and smash hitsy and synth poppy you know the, there were these guys with you know giant sort of dyed black hairstyles <laughs> singing about boneyards and heroin you know yeah. um, and and the, and the Flashy just were certainly, of course, the, the, the famous uh, Gun Club song "She's Like Heroin" to me. Um, I don't know if you were ever interested in any of that stuff. Uh, or I, Rhodes, think, but I think on on the back of um, some enthusing by yes, <laughs> someone. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I pursued it. I, I remember liking Jeffrey Lee Pierce's voice. Yeah. I don't think I ever chased the Flash Eaters particularly. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I got really the. The, it's interesting how much uh, how important it is t- for me to be able to associate people with a sense of place, and perhaps because it was LA, which is not I've never been sure. there, and it's not a place I understand really. I hadn't really put together that that's what it was about. Yeah. I, I, now I think I would be more interested in that because mm-hmm. I know a bit more about it and mm. and, can, and maybe we'll be able to pick it out in those terms. Mm. But yeah. But I remember them being discussed, and, yes. and you know it was part of the many things you heard to sort of get your head around. Yes. but it was a little bit further back in my <laughs> yeah. enthusiasm. It passed me by entirely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so that's that's the free feature, and we'll now turn our attention to this week's audio interview for RBP subscribers, and it's a very different. Scene, uh, subject, area from the Flesh Eaters. It's it's uh, Cliff White's 1979 interview with Earth, Wind and Fire leader, yep. main main man, uh, Maurice White, yep. as we must call him. We really can't call him Morris White. No, he 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 refers. Just doesn't sound right. No, he he refers to himself as Maurice. In yes. the interview, you know, when he's talking in the third person, it, it's 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 great stuff. Um, uh, Cliff has got, I think, a fairly justifiable bee in his bonnet about the lyrics that Maurice particularly wrote for the band, because they are kind of pseudo-philosophical bullshit, actually, <laughs> you know, not to put too fine a point on it. And he challenges Maurice on this, and Maurice sort of gets into defending it, starts waxing philosophical about metaphysical musical vibrations and the, and the like. Actually, we could play a swift clip now, which is him talking precisely about metaphysical vibrations. Let's do it. Okay, there is a double meaning in the lyrics. Uh, if you aren't in tune, as I said before, our audience evolved out of people who were involved with metaphysics. Uh, there's a very intellectual group of people in America, college kids, that whole thing, that we appeal to. 
we there are many messages in our lyrics that are underlining but if you are not in tune metaphysically to that vibration you're missing yeah you're in tune to <clears throat> the type of lyrics that are just straightforward you say what you gotta say and keep moving and you don't analyze the lyrics at all then you then you might miss something in our lyrics because uh, there's a lot of esoteric scene in there Yeah, and this is some really interesting stuff. I mean, Cliff against... I think Cliff finds Earth, Wind & Fire a bit too polished. And I mean, you know, Barney and I actually enjoy particularly the, the, that that polish, but I think Cliff tastes lean to the slightly greasier funk end of black music. And so he sort of asks, basically asks um, Maurice if uh, they're getting too perfect, if there's too much perfection, not enough rawness. And Maurice... Put, constructs this elaborate argument about how if you perfect the rawness, you're getting there, you know, <laughs> and, and stuff like that. Um, it, it's, it, it's, it's very the sound quality isn't fantastic. There's a lot of background noise, but he's very, very clear throughout throughout at all. Do we think it's just uh, when the I Am album is about to come out? Absolutely, it's not named in the interview, which I'd say is possibly the greatest album. Oh, it's their peak. Yeah. It's their creative yeah. and funktastic peak. I think it's an absolute masterpiece. Ab- I mean, I remember Danny Baker reviewing it in NME and going out and buying it and. I still think it is. It's one of the greatest records ever made. I go back to it time and time again. It's just magnificent. Yeah, 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 Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, we were playing it yesterday, and and I said to you, I think this must be the tightest music (laughs) that I've ever heard. But but not. It doesn't mean that it's sterile. It just means it is extraordinarily tight. The syncopations, the pushes, are just electrifying. And then you have extraordinarily arranged vocals, which have. As Marie says in the interview, are actually just him and Philip Bailey. They multitrack and they multitrack and multitrack themselves. Philip Bailey, as he says, has a, having an octave above Marie's, but they're yes. both, both singing high. Yes. Um, and and the, the way all of that's layered. I mean, Barney and I both separately in different places about five years ago went to see the current iteration of Earth, Wind & Fire. I, as a general rule of thumb, avoid seeing bands I loved playing again today as far as I possibly can. It's invariably a bitterly disappointing experience. But while Maurice has gone, Vadine is still playing bass, Philip Bailey's still singing, still got a great horn section. And I saw them at the O2. They made the whole O2 dance for two hours. It was fantastic. Well, I had a similar experience. And actually, we can bring your book back into this. It loops back in because I went to see Earth, Wind & Fire at the Beacon Theatre in New York with... David Sigerson, who I was delighted oh, wow. to see gets his dues in this book yeah. and, and who shaped certainly my appreciation of, of uh, black music, yeah. black American music in the disco era, as did Danny Baker. Also a fantastic writer. Fantastic a great, writer. Great style. And, yeah. and that's acknowledged in, yeah. in the book. So, so David called me up and said, I got tickets for, for Earth, Wind and Fire. We went. I, I had low expectations. It was an absolute joy. You know, Maurice obviously was, was he, st- I think he was still alive, but obviously very ill at that point. Yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't playing. Certainly not. Well, he was not in anywhere near yeah, able yeah. to perform. No. So the, the whole focus was on 
the magnificent Verdine, oh. who was just such a joy. I mean, yeah. in a kind of he was sort of a bit like Bootsy, but yep. less less far out. Yeah. But yeah. but just just so he delightful. Did, he did used to get flown and over the stage on the back of a harness. He, he, did, he didn't. He did. have, sadly, the night I saw. No, him. no. Uh, <laughs> but but he was still remarkably yeah. the, agile the, the, the for a man struck, of his age. The other thing that struck me is that that let's say a band's song orientated bands getting back together twenty years after the fact and doing their stuff. You know, it's tired, it's old, it hasn't had any energy. But dance music, it either works or it doesn't. And yeah, these yeah. people were clearly loving playing what they were playing mm. five years ago. And they all must be in their 60s, I'd say, yeah. you know. And they were funky as all hell. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's absolutely free of any baggage of the past. Yeah. It's that moment in time when the groove is happening yeah. and the whole O2 is dancing. Yeah. Uh, well, you so, know. Well, that's, that's what Maurice was trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just, man. But his language for it was, was yes. perhaps not the way you just said it, but it, that's what he's talking about. OK, well, you know, after, I may have to re-listen to the interviews. <laughs> they are a band that got better and better. If you listen to the very first albums, which were like, well, I think the first album was almost like 1970. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it sounds like quite conventional American funk of that period mm-hmm. and you know with each album I think it just gets more sophisticated more dazzling and to I think Cliff, by, Cliff White's horror <laughs> well maybe I, I mean I do think Cliff, Cliff I, I think Maurice deals with Cliff's questions quite magnanimously oh, I, I mean you know I, others might have taken offence yes. because Cliff doesn't I often wonder whether Cliff because he was writing for the NME yeah. felt he had in a sense to sort of challenge yeah. that sort of waffle and specious yeah. kind but, of metaphysical but stuff but there's an interesting bit where they actually almost discuss Cliff's language because they talk. Uh, Maurice talks about how people are blunt in England uh, 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 in a way that they aren't in America in terms of language, and so they're basically talking about Cliff being quite rude in his. He's questioning. quite blunt. So it's kind of a meta conversation about the interviews. Sort of. Yeah. Sort of one you point. can't quite take offence, but I, I, sitting, I'm sort of thinking. Well, you know. If I was Maurice, yeah. I, I might, I might almost sort of get up and yeah. walk out. I, I think we've got, we've got to remember that, that Maurice would have known about Cliff already; that he'd, they'd met before a number they of occasions, and he'd been a big cheerleader for Black American music. So mm. I think there was a, probably a certain amount of, you know, mm. uh, Cliff probably got a bit of a pass there. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, so almost the second big interview I did for NME which would have been in 1981 was with Maurice White I think it was sort of like at the Inn on the Park and I was I was I was very daunted by the prospect <laughs> of meeting this this sort of high priest, if you like, and as you would like. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, in a sense, I came in with with slightly the same attitude. That the Faces double album that came out, I think it was called Faces, it was such a disappointment to me after I Am, and I and I found that I had to sort of say say that to him, and didn't want to say that to him. But I, I felt they did kind of decline creatively yeah. after that point. Yeah. You know, I mean, they got a bit lost in the in the 80s as did so many of the great acts of the 70s mm. I think and dance music and funk just went into very different yeah. um, and more commercialised areas didn't yeah. they so anyway we'll hear a little bit more of Maurice at the end of the podcast yeah. uh, we're now going to turn our attention to what is going into the Rocks Back Pages library this week for well, subscribers there's, there's actually you know, a lot of really good stuff he said you know, he said. He said. Starting with Gene Carroll and Disc in 1963, talking, writing about the cavern. This is obviously at the height of the Merseybeat boom. 
Jean Carroll is actually June Harris under another name. She, as was often the case with the papers in those days, a handful of people wrote yeah. them, so you've got a lot of pseudonyms floating around. This is August 63. This is August 63, and she says, The cavern is the cellar of an old brick warehouse, brick building. Three caves make up its interior, for the most part unpainted. The floor, too, is solid, cold flagstone, and it doesn't remain cold for long. There is no lighting except for three or four naked red bulbs and a stage light which beams just far enough down the centre cave for cavern stompers to identify their partners. <laughs> In the corner on the left stands a coffee bar, the cavern's only association with the outside world. The damp heat, stone walls and humid air about the place give the cavern the, fir- it's the first of its basic ingredients, a built-in atmosphere, a kind of steam heat which engulfs every visitor. Terrific. I, I, I love that. You know, You're right there, aren't you? You, you? you really are. You know, In a um, way that no, none of the pictures we all know of the fabs playing there. They can't, I mean, she talks Tim about Gilly. like people sprayed up, with, up the Beatles and ban the bomb and the building above and things like that. <laughs> it's, it's a very nice snapshot of the great, time and the place. Great, great. Uh, Dawn James, one of my favourites, interviews Scott Walker and actually kind of really reveals him to be the sort of pretentious ass that he, re- he is. I mean, she's, she's very good at that, Dawn James. She kind of asks questions and lets people hang themselves and then prints it up. This is a wire icon, Scott Walker. I know. Is he allowed to say this in the <laughs> <laughs> She's a famous French author and philosopher, Jean-Paul Sartre, has an influence on Scott. He's my whole thing, Scott said. What he says is beautiful. He's discovered what I've been hunting for ages. I still want something. I'm like a child. Some people stay that way all their lives. Picasso was that way. It's what I call hip. Not the used way of the word hip, but the true one. <laughs> I, I, I'm, you know, you know we, all right, we all love Scott Walker, but he... You know, <laughs> sorry. Uncredited interview from Melody Maker in June 70 with Sonny Chirac, who's a bit of a personal hero of mine, out there guitarists being a thing of particular... Interest to me, yes. You're uh, an out-there guitarist uh, uh, Well, I am a bit of an out-there guitarist well, in myself. Here. In here. <laughs> um, and it's great, it's a great interview, because this guy just, you know, pulls no punches. He says, that stuff about borrowing people's phrases, that ain't borrowing, it's stealing, and I don't respect people who steal. Don Cherry, for instance, is the only original trumpet in the last 20 years. All the other cats are playing Miles or Brownie. All the young tenor players sound like Train, and he's dead. That sad man. Mm. And that's kind of like the tone of the interview. It's fabulous stuff. Moving swiftly on, 1972, unpublished piece by Geoffrey Cannon, written for The Guardian, turned down. And it's with Lou Reed talking about his first solo album. Basically goes through his first solo album track by track. And it's just one little bit I want to read. This is around the time when he and Bowie hooked up. And he says... I was up at RCA and they played the album. This is, I guess, is Bowie's what, Man Who Sold the World, maybe. And I said, my God, he's right there, right there. And that was all there was to it. Then I heard the second album. I sit around and listen to his albums for hours because they are what I'm like. He's the only person I know doing something that I can really listen to outside of the kinks. Well, Sometimes the kinks get into that, but David is right there on, on centre. Mm. This was at the height of their love affair, really. I mean, Bowie was about to produce, well... He and Mick Ronson were about Transformer. Transformer. So that's a nice little snapshot. The other thing is that Lou's actually kind of remarkably pleasant in this interview. He hadn't turned into the cantankerous <laughs> bastard that most music writers will describe to you. Lucky uh, Jeffrey. Cliff White again, Black Music, 19th December 78. And he's the Temptations are visiting England. He interviews them. And this is like the What's left of the Temptations? What is the Temptations at this point? Uh, and they, they, they were two albums into a New Deal Atlantic, having been on Motown their entire careers, and they all lay into Motown. They, they just 
for once they can start telling tales out of school. Otis Williams, who's the only remaining original member, pretty much. Another thing that got every, everybody down, Motown would promote a company over their act. It'd be the Motown Review, Motown's Temptations, Motown this, Motown that. They used to have meetings at the company to tell the staff to make sure that the name of Motown was always out there in front of the act. And the whole interview is full of this sort of stuff. It's good stuff. Massive 8,000-word Richard Williams interview with Brian Eno from January 80. I haven't got any quotations from this because it's, it, it's just... Uh, it's Anyone interested in cultural studies, it's very interesting. And Eno is someone I'm sort of ambivalent about. He's done some really fabulous things. But he is sort of promotes himself and is promoted by others as the sort of the public intellectual of the, the, the rock industry, the rock business. Intellectual, well, I mean, the bar is set very low. In the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And by the standards of most rock musicians, there's no doubt that he knows a serious mind and a serious brain. What's your take, Mark, on, uh, on Brian Eno? Again, a sort of wire icon, and you've interviewed I'd Brian. I've interviewed him. He is, he's very, well, charming, winning, mm-hmm. engaging. You absolutely feel that that he's taking you into his confidence about his amazing perspective. But I remember when I did the particular interview that I think you're talking about for The Wire, then glancing at some other interview he'd done at the same time and just noticing, oh, OK, all the things that he told me as... as you felt was just for you. you yeah, no, managed. no, he, that yes. was his shtick yes. yeah. at yes. that point. And he's very good at making you feel somehow you you are on this journey with him. Yes. And, in, and and I thought, oh, OK, that's an interesting thing to, mm. you know, I, I think he, he's someone who's very good at, as a popularizer of slightly uh, out of the mainstream mm. conceptual yeah. ideas. And you call them a conjurer, I think, which was a very good term, I uh, Yes, I think I had a little bit of a sort of line I, I think, uh, uh, around that. I honestly, I mean, when you said that, I, I meant I thought, did I? I, I might have called him that. <laughs> yeah. I can't now remember yeah. what my... Or so, maybe you did, or maybe the, maybe the sub-editor put that no, in the that stand been, first. That would have been yeah, me, I, I, think I didn't have conjurer sounds about that. <laughs> I, I, I mean, he is very interesting in this interview about process, about the process of doing things. He knows enough about the art world and so on to bring in some of the language of the art world about process about yeah. making things he's also kind of quite good at, there's a good bit where he talks about you know you have to have a sense of perspective when you're making pop records or rock records is that you're not building a cathedral you're just carving a single gargoyle on that cathedral and i, I, I think that's a very very good point um it, it's 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 eight thousand words it's really worth Reading. I bet it is. It was January eighty, yeah. so he already had produced Fear of Music yes, at that point. Yeah. He um, did a he did a interview for NME with Cynthia Rose, a really good mm-hmm. interview. I mean, good because it was Cynthia, but it was full of really interesting stuff. I suspect, as it's the same, yeah, same, um, maybe the same motion, <laughs> yeah, that it won't be very different. Yeah. But but Richard would probably be pushing well, it in a slightly different direction anyway. Richard knows. What he's what Eno is talking about, and he understands, yes. and he also knows Eno very well. Of course, he well, he'd been an A and R man at Eno. Yeah, discovered from yeah. um, So, so it's a conversation of equals in that respect. Yes. Richard does know what questions to ask. Exactly. So I found it fascinating, mm. even though I am a slight Eno skeptic. I mean, I have a lot of admiration. Time he's been involved in two or three of the records I love almost more than any. You know, I mean, certainly a couple of the Talking Heads albums and a couple of the Bowie albums. He's heavily involved in. I think. It's Fabulous. a pretty extraordinary career, and, and I think. He, was, he talks a lot about being in New York, because he's yeah. around that time when he's spending a lot of time in New York. Doesn't talk about the no 
uh, New no, York. No New Wave. But, 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 no New York. But uh, he does talk about, he talks about talking heads, about how he loves mm. them as people and mm. likes their music and really mm. enjoys working with them. And also about the enthusiasm of New York, where people will just grab hold of you and say, listen to this, and mm. I'm doing that, and so on. Richard once gave me a, a cassette tape of the television demos that Brian produced really? in 75. Wow. Yeah, Richard wow. and Brian were both there in New York, and uh, they never got used in the end, and obviously Brian didn't end up producing mm. Marquee Moon, but but he you know, he sort of had his, has his fingers in so yeah. many yeah, pies, yeah. doesn't no, he? Has a bit of a zealot. Well, more than a zealot. I think it's probably no. uh, disrespectful to say that he's a zealot, but, but he pops up in so many interesting areas of music. Yeah, and then there's you too. <laughs> and Coldplay. <laughs> Moving swiftly on, um, the very last thing I'll talk about is Millie Jackson live at Hannah Smith Odeon. And when I saw this piece, the first thing I said to everyone in the office is, says, don't sit in the front row to Millie Jackson concert. <laughs> and I started reading it, and the very first paragraph, this is from Adam Seating, didn't they warn you about me? demanded Millie Jackson, the unfortunate girl in the front row, who had swiftly been reduced to tears by Millie's suggestive hectoring. These English girls cry so easily. Do they cry when you fuck them? Uh, whether these were tears of laughter or humiliation wasn't clear. Well, Millie continued, I'm one of the rudest bitches you'll ever meet. And with that, she flounced to the back of the stage, holding out a wrist to receive a derisory slap from one of her backing vocalists. Uh, and and that is a Millie Jackson concert. I've been to see Millie Jackson. You've been to see, Don't see, Millie, see Jackson. Millie Jackson. Don't sit in the front row. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Brilliant. That, that's, so that, 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 that's that's my lot. Oh, that, that, that's fantastic. Well, I don't have much to add to that, but to uh, um, to pick up from where you left off when you were talking about Scott Engel slash Walker, <laughs> there is a rather wonderful um, Max Bell piece on Noel Harrison, who was the son of Rex Harrison. Right. And they talk about Noel's first album, which features him sitting in a fridge reading, I think, Nausea by Jean-Paul Sartre. <laughs> this is 1966. <laughs> so, but it's a wonderful piece, actually, about what it must have been like to be Rex Harrison's son. I mean, for those of you who don't know who... Do you want to say Rex no, no, Harrison? No, no. Well, he, was, he was a great English character yeah. actor in Hollywood. I mean, he played... It was Dr. Doolittle, wasn't he? Was he? Doolittle. he was Dr. Doolittle. That was, Doolittle. His, that was kind of his... Hollywood downfall because it was a massive flop. But, um, he'd been in My Fair Lady yeah. as, and on on stage and then on screen, and those were huge, huge. Which is hits. great. He doubles as a Rex Harrison. Like, he was cool. Well, we, 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 yeah. We've invited the right we, guest. Yeah, got the right guy here. <laughs> the other today. Thing, <laughs> it's, it's interesting because we actually have quite a few pieces by our writers on the from back in the day, which I will now. Dig out and, and, and well, good. see if they mention. Well, he sounds like an interesting guy. I mean, he was right there in the middle of the zeitgeist in in Los Angeles, so partying with with all these luminaries, and um, he had one big hit, "Windmills of Your Mind," and and nothing God, really after I'd that. I've forgotten but, about that. Yes, blimey! And then the last piece that I'm going to mention from from recent years is is the wonderful Kate Mossman, who we adore, mm. uh, writing about Queen, writing about finally meeting Roger Taylor and Brian May, having been a sort of teenage Queen <laughs> obsessive, and and she talks rather wonderfully about. As, as a sort of 15-year-old sort of hanging around outside Roger Taylor's sort of Cornish compound. <laughs> and then all these years later, she's actually going through the gates of this compound to, 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 to interview Roger. So, I mean, given the way Queen have just, just become, seems to become more and more popular, Bohemian Rhapsody, the film, has just become one of the sensations of the last year. It's timely, and 
it, it's interesting to read someone as, as bright and witty as Kate about what makes Queen or what made Queen so special, Freddie and so forth. So, so uh, they, I recommend that never, as well. They never really got a particularly fair shake from the music press, who were always Definitely not. very suspicious of them. That's right. That's uh, early that, yeah. and late, yeah, because it was so flamboyant, yeah, and 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 Freddie, it was like this. It was sort of like the purloined letter, wasn't it? I mean, he was he was so <laughs> obviously gay, and yet no, never admitted it, and no, no. one really talked about it. And, but, and lots of the, fa- of the fans didn't didn't know, didn't, were didn't in know, denial, didn't yeah, it, in denial or just not yeah, didn't. Know, it, it was but, interesting yeah. is that when Glam first met, let's say Bowie and Bolan, that that. It was a relief from kind of mud-encrusted jeans and so on and so forth, and everyone, including a lot of the underground press writers, really embraced it. But by the time Queen emerges, about two, three years later, suddenly everyone was talking about the word street used to appear in the enemy a lot. You know, yes. things had to be street. <laughs> yes. And there was nothing much less street than Queen. <laughs> no. Well, well, Queen was sort of slightly too big for their britches, in a way, weren't they? They went so far beyond glam, they sort of melded it with, with sort of pomp rock in yeah. a way that was, wasn't really acceptable. I've also got to remember that, that the music press, a lot of music journalists really didn't like bands who did it without their help. There's a lot of that. A lot of that goes on, you know. And yeah, sure. uh, Queen really did it without much music, music press help. Yeah. Has any either of you seen Bohemian Rhapsody? No. I mean, it's got really savage reviews when it came out. Now everyone's saying it's wonderful and it should win awards. And um, <laughs> yeah, well, I, I probably will see it at some point. I, I, I do have a sort of soft spot for Queen. I think in their way they were they were sort of ludicrous and wonderful. So there we are. That's that's uh, Kate Mossman finally getting to meet both Brian May and and uh, the very pretty Roger Taylor. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it leaves me really to thank our guest Mark Sinker for coming in today. Oh, thank you for inviting. Uh, please have a look at his wonderful book, A Hidden Landscape, once a week. It's great speaking with you about. About, you know, uh, International Times and Rex Harrison and <laughs> Earth, Wind and Fire, Mark. So, you know, do come and see us again. And, Mark, you're going to sort of bow us out with another uh, Another bit of the, 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 the waxing philosophical and metaphysical of uh, Marie Spite from Earth, Wind and Fire. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. I do this for one means or one sake. Of purpose, and that is the purpose of creating the art, trying to uplift the art, trying to uplift the level of music, trying to uplift the level of consciousness in a sense of people uh, who are my peers, and also uh, trying to uplift the consciousness on a level of rising, uh, rising the level of music consciousness very high. And I, uh, I'm very concerned with that. Because it only makes it better for my young brothers behind me, my young sisters behind me, my my uh, future kids, and everything else. You know, so I I look forward to helping. You know. That was Maurice White of Earth, Wind, and Fire in conversation with Cliff White, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Mark Sinker, whose anthology A Hidden Landscape Once a Week is out now. For further details, please visit marksinker.co.uk. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Murison Bowie. You can find thousands of articles as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. Shining star for you to see, 